May the words of my mouth and the meditations of my heart be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. Good morning. I would like for you to imagine with me, if you will, that you live in the ancient city of Carthage in what is today the North African city of Tunis in Tunisia. The year is 220 A.D. The Emperor Antonius sits on the throne. The great African theologian Tertullian, a local, has just died, and the memory of the martyrdom of Felicitas and Perpetua 17 years earlier is still fresh for your community. You have been preparing for three years to be baptized. Over the past 40 days, you've fasted from meat and wine, you have kept all-night vigils, you have visited the poor, the widows, the orphans. The night before your baptism, your bishop gathered with you and all the other candidates for baptism and breathed on your face as a sign against the devil and all his works. He anointed you with oil on your forehead, your ears, your nostrils, And he placed salt on your tongue in order to remind you that you are the salt of the earth. And now today is Easter morning, the day of your baptism, and it is dawn. Standing in an antechamber with members of the same gender, you take off all of your clothes and wait for the deacon to call you to the stone font that has been carved into the ground. In stripping off your clothes, you are symbolizing the removal of your old self in order to receive the new self promised to you in Jesus' resurrection. If you are a woman, then a female deacon will perform the entire rite in place of your pastor. Standing in the water, naked like Jesus on the cross, your pastor asks you if you renounce the devil and all his schemes, and you proclaim, yes, with vigor. Your pastor then immerses you three times in the water, each time asking if you believe in each person of the Trinity. The font has now become your tomb and your womb, signifying your death and birth. Having been baptized, you step out of the font and your pastor anoints you again with oil. He makes the sign of the cross over you. He places his hands on you and prays that the Holy Spirit will strengthen you for this new life that may involve martyrdom. You are also given a new set of clothes, a white garment that symbolizes your life now as a child of the light. Your new brothers and sisters in Christ hug you with cheers and each gives you a kiss on the cheek as a sign of welcome into the family of God. Your pastor offers you a cup that includes a mix of milk and honey as a token of your symbolic entrance into the promised land. And for the first time in your life, you share the Eucharistic bread and wine with the whole church. Every sense in your body has been included in your baptism. Sight, smell, sound, touch, and taste. Because there is no part of your body that does not get consecrated to Jesus. 
For the Christians of the early church era, faith was a fundamentally sacramental thing. It was not just about what you thought or felt, as important and decisive as those things were. It was about what you did with your body. And giving their bodies wholly to God in baptism, these Christians became freed to offer their bodies wholly to others in sacrificial love. In our passage today, we transition from positional talk to dynamic talk. We're no longer talking about your status as justified in Christ. We're now talking about the very real challenge of living into this new life. And for the purposes of my sermon this morning, I would like to focus on two parts in Romans 6, 1 to 14. First, what it means to count yourself alive to God in your body. And second, what it means to offer your bodies as instruments of righteousness to God. So first then, count yourself alive to God in your body. At the top of the passage, Paul clears up a possible misunderstanding in the mind of his reader. If grace increases where sin increased, doesn't that mean that if we sin more, like grace shows up more? Isn't that the way that it works? And Paul says, no, no, not at all. Being under grace doesn't mean that we can do whatever we want. Because if we do that, then it means we're still trying to live out of our old self, our false self, our broken self. Before your baptism, Paul tells us, your body was enslaved to sin-disordered passions. Sin imprisoned you. It controlled you. It tyrannized you. It bred death in your body. But now that you've been baptized, sin no longer owns you. So don't let it master you, Paul urges his readers. Now the imagery here recalls the language of Genesis 4, 7, where God speaks to Cain after Cain's offering has been rejected. If you keep doing what, is, what isn't right, God says to Cain, watch out because sin is crouching at the door and it wants to control you. But you must master it before it masters you. Now, I think I have a pretty good firsthand understanding of what it is that God is saying to Cain and what Paul is saying to the believers at Rome as it relates to my lifelong struggle with the vice of anger. And I've discovered that the vice of anger isn't just in my heart, it just isn't in my mind, it is in my body, it is in my neural synapses, it is in my chemistry, it is in my instincts. Over my entire adulthood, I have struggled with being quick to irritate. I snap at people. I erupt in anger when I get hurt. I react without thinking. And when I do these things and I see the harm that it is doing, not just to me, but those who are closest to me, my family and my close friends, I think to myself the same exact thing. Why do I keep doing this? Why do I keep erupting in anger? Why do I keep hurting those closest to me? And yet I keep choosing to do it. And your story and your vice is maybe different from mine. You may reach instinctively for that extra donut in order to dull the pain in your life. You may take on that extra act of work because you're a workaholic as a way to numb the pain in your life. 
You may take another drink. You may click on that extra porn site. You may click mindlessly through social media. You let go one more cynical or negative remark and it comes out of your mouth yet again and you ask yourself in the moment as you see the harm that it is doing to yourself and those that you love, why do I keep doing the same thing? Why do I let myself be controlled by this? And in doing it over and over and over, you experience what many of us experience, which is this sense of feeling helpless and hopeless. But Paul reminds the brothers and sisters at Rome that there is, in fact, help. There is hope. There is new life on offer. When you got baptized, he tells the believers at Rome, you died to your old self, and you came out a new you. It's a true you. You're no longer Pinocchio made out of wood. You're a real boy. You're not the velveteen rabbit anymore. You're a real rabbit. You're not Gandalf the gray. You're Gandalf the white. You came out a new thing and you've got powers. So use them. You don't belong to the order marked by the devastation of sin, as, as Nick reminded us last week in his sermon. You belong to the order marked by the life-giving power of the Spirit of God with more life on the way. All of which leads to Romans 6, 11. Count yourself. Count yourself. Think of yourself. Regard of yourself as dead to sin and alive to God. You have got the power of the new creation coursing in your veins. And your body now belongs to the country of grace. So don't let sin rule your body. Which brings us then to Paul's second point, which follows logically from the first. Because you count yourself alive to God, offer your body as an instrument to righteousness. Now, the key verb here in Romans 6.13 is offer. And this is, of course, temple language. It's priest offering sacrifice in the temple language. But here in Paul, it's transferred to every body language. Everybody gets to offer their bodies as an instrument of righteousness. But what does that exactly mean? Because it's a fancy theological term, right? It's the kind of term that you hear and it's just kind of the blah, blah, blah in your head. So what does it look like? What does it look like to offer your body as an instrument to righteousness? Now, I have a friend who I think embodies this instrument to righteousness uh, quite well. And uh, it's somebody new when I was a pastor at a church here in town, Hope Chapel, his name is Tim Deal, and I write about him in my Psalms book. But when I knew him, Tim was an MBA student at the University of Texas. And he is what I would call the quintessentially conservative human being. So if you imagine for yourself the most well-mannered, self-controlled, non-charismatic, non-expressive, dockers-wearing, nice, buttoned-up shirt kind of human being. So imagine that person. Think of the most controlled, conservative human that you know. Maybe they're here at Church of the Cross. And now you can imagine Tim Deal. Now, at our church, which is kind of a moderately charismatic church, we would have sort of extensive time of singing and worship, 20 to 30 minutes. And this didn't happen every Sunday, but it would happen often enough that the most conservative human being that I had ever met, an MBA student at the University of Texas, would sometimes do a thing that caught all of our attention. He would be standing at the edge here of our pews, which we had pews, and then in the middle of a song, unannounced, there's was, there was no bell that went off that said, now Tim goes, 
But Tim would launch in the most um, glorious, hilarious, and self-abandoned dance. And I have to demonstrate it to you because you're not going to understand it unless you put together conservative human creature and this, Maria von Trapp, goes <laughs> to charismatic church. So he'd be standing here, let's say this is the pew, and we'd all be singing, you know, maybe some hand raising, maybe some this, maybe some clapping, and Tim would be doing this, <clears throat> and then all of a sudden, Tim, if you're watching, I love you. Um, but you know I love you because I've done this before. <laughs> and he would be singing, and then all of a sudden, he'd be go like this. And then he'd go around the pews, and he'd like this, windmills everywhere. And then he'd come back to Sarah and then keep singing. So then, no, 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 no. Pop it off. There you go. Thank you. Sorry. Such expressive dancing. Uh, I lost myself. My voice. Um, I never did it. I was never brave enough. But I did get curious. Because I'd see this Sunday after Sunday, month after month. Tim, why? Like, there's nobody else that does this. I mean, the kids maybe danced, but no other adult. And not like that. <laughs> and his answer surprised me. He said, I, 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 it's not because it comes naturally. It's not my personality, and I don't really feel it. But I feel like for what God has called me to be in the world, it's my act of obedience. It's my little sacrifice of praise that I can offer to God as a way to free me from this fear of what other people think about me. Because in the business world, it's all about how you're perceived. And it's this fear that I have that I'm always going to be the kind of person who needs to be in control. And so I want to offer myself to God in this way, and it's a little thing, but it's a little thing that I can do. And it's in that sense that I would say that Tim Deal was this beautiful human being who offered his body in this very specific way as an instrument to all that is right and true and good about what it means to be human in the world. And the result of this little sacrifice of praise that he would do occasionally, repeatedly, was that it generated in Tim new bodily instincts, new bodily impulses, new habits that spilled out into the rest of his life. Now, the truth of the matter is that for some of us today, maybe most of us here today, the idea of dancing in church like that is mortifying. Or perhaps it is simply exhausting to think that I would get out and do something like that. The past year under COVID, in fact, has left many of us feeling burned out and beaten up and shut down in our bodies. We can barely muster the energy to come to church and to sit here and to be half present. Our bodies, because of this last year and everything else in our lives, are tired. And in many ways, they're traumatized. So we're not sure that we can do this offering our bodies as an instrument to righteousness, at least not in the ways that seem obvious or big. But here's the thing. The beauty of the gospel is the best things usually start small. And I think there are little small acts of faithfulness that we could do in order to generate a life that is opened up more and more to the life of God, to the love of God, as Peter mentioned earlier. And I think the context here in our worship together is this marvelous place for us to try things out in a completely safe and trusting space, to offer our bodies to God. So let me suggest two things you could consider doing, both of which involve our hands. 
Our hands, amongst many things, can do two things in the liturgy. They can be offered up to God, and they can be offered out to God. So the first is usually like a sign of humility, and the second is like a sign of honor. So in a gesture of humility, for example, during the call prayer or the prayer for confession, you can offer your hands. You don't have to feel it. It doesn't have to have anything to do with your personality, but you can just put your hands out there and say, dear God in heaven, I'm not feeling it. I don't know if I fully believe it, but here are my hands. My hands as a a part of my body, a hand, my hands are sort of like a sign of my whole self, my heart, my mind, and I offer it to you, and I say, please, dear God, do something good with my hands and my life this day, in humility. Now, in a gesture of honor, maybe during our time of singing, you could put your hands like this, which there is a decent chance that we might be doing that when we are standing face-to-face with the maker of heaven and earth. So we can practice now. But you put your hands up and you say, God in heaven, I don't feel it. I'm tired. I'm worn out. But I'm going to lift my hands to say, I love you. I praise you. I honor you. Take my life. And let it be. And I do these things not simply because they're right and good and true. Because somehow, in the alchemy of grace, over time, in the doing them over and over and over, you and I become more whole more integrated. So then, two things that you might consider doing. Let me end my sermon today by going back to the third century in North Africa. The sociologist Rodney Starks in his book, The Rise of Christianity, writes about how Christians of this era did what their pagan neighbors were unwilling to do. Rodney Starks is not a Christian. Was not when he wrote the book. In 251 AD, which is about 30 years after the time that I had you imagined at the beginning of my sermon, a horrific plague swept through the entire empire. Historians speculate that around a quarter of the population died as a result. To put that in real numbers for us, that's about 80 million Americans dying because of COVID-19. Cyprian who was the bishop of Carthage at the time, recounts his experience of seeing human carcasses lay in the streets, untouched and rotting. His pagan neighbors would run away or expose their own friends to the plague in the hopes that this might keep death at bay for them. But the Christians, they stayed. They stayed in order to care for the plague victims. They stayed because they knew that death did not have the last word in their lives. Resurrection did. They stayed because they had been baptized with Jesus. They stayed because that was the way of Jesus. A bishop at the time, Dionysus of Alexandria, who lived in another region of the empire, but who experienced the similar effects of the plague, writes about how Christians loved the diseased bodies of their neighbors. They nursed them, embraced them, washed them. They closed their eyes and mouths. They carried them. They wrapped them in grave clothes. And they buried them. And soon enough, the same service was performed for them. Dear friends, they did these things because they had experienced firsthand the death-defying powers of the baptism that they had experienced in Jesus. They had experienced the Holy Spirit power that had freed them from sin-distorting passions. They had experienced the grace of God that had freed them for a life of embodied service to others. Brothers and sisters, I stand here today to tell you that that same power is yours and it is mine. 
You too have in your veins the power that raised Jesus from the dead. You too can give away your body to others who need to experience the healing touch of God this day. You too can offer your body as an instrument of righteousness, however is most appropriate and faithful in your life. You may start small. You may start big. You may start at home in your relationships where this really comes to bear. The stakes are high. The people that know you, you may do this at work. You may do this with your neighbors or elsewhere. But wherever you need the power of the risen Jesus to show up in your life today, brothers and sisters, where you need that power of the risen Jesus to show up in your bodies, your hands, your feet, your eyes, your ears, your nose, your mouth, your whole self, through which we bless and curse others. I'm here to tell you that you have got the Holy Spirit within you. I'm here to tell you that the body of Christ is on your side. I'm here to tell you that the grace of God is offered to you over and over and over again. All you have to do is ask, St. Paul tells us. And that we do this morning, this day, this hour. Let us pray. God in heaven made manifest in a body, a broken body, a body that heals all broken bodies. We ask you this day, come Holy Spirit. Speak to each of us the word of life that we need to hear. Speak to us in the places where we are most broken and where we are most breaking of others, where we hurt ourselves and others and we feel helpless and hopeless and we say, come Lord Jesus, that the power of your resurrection life be made manifest, tangible, seeable, feelable to do what seems impossible in our lives. Come make new, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.